Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Accelerating climate change, disruptive technology, increasing conflict and war, massive numbers of displaced people seeking safety, the breakup of the post-war global order that framed and facilitated the great advances of the past 75 years. That's the bad news of 2024. The good news is that everything I've just described, except perhaps the physics driving climate change, can be altered by human agency. Great leaders can bend the arc of history. What kind of leaders do we need? Leaders like Andrew Bastaris, a winner of the 2023 Telberg SNF Eliason Global Leadership Prize. Please join our conversation as Andrew and I discuss how he is meeting the challenge of bringing vision to the millions in Africa and elsewhere who otherwise would be unseen by even the most caring and dedicated medical professionals. And then tell us what you think. Hello, I'm Alan Stogat, chairman of the Telberg Foundation. Today, I am delighted to be with Andrew Bastoris, a winner of the 2023 Telberg SNF and Global Leadership Prize. And I want to start by reading you what's on his prize. He was awarded this prize by the Telberg jury for bringing vision and thereby better lives to more than a million people. Welcome, Andrew. How do you do it? What do you do? So I wear several hats. I'm a professor of global eye health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which is a leading public health institute. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of a social enterprise called Peak Vision. We make software and a data intelligence platform that equips eye care providers to find those who would normally get missed in uh, eye care outreach programs. Uh, and prior to that, I was working as an eye surgeon in the NHS. Let's talk a little bit about peak vision. What is it? And that, that's, that's where you do the voodoo you do uh, that has reached many more than a million people. We'll get to the numbers in a moment. So what is peak? Not the technology as much as the philosophy of, of what does that social enterprise do? So a lot, a lot of what is peak today came from a realization that as an individual eye surgeon, I was seeing as many people as I could. I was treating as many people as I could, but I wasn't seeing who wasn't turning up. And, and as a physician or a surgeon, you are trained to treat the people in front of you and maybe be aware of who's in the waiting room. But as soon as you go beyond that, there are often millions more people who don't even get to the waiting room. And, and the transition from being a surgeon to a public health doctor allowed me to kind of change the paradigm of what I was looking at and seeing that there are uh, countless numbers of people who are effectively invisible. And we need to find a different way to bring those people into the healthcare system and provide them with treatment, which can be completely transformational. Um, in, in eye care, we're fortunate in that the leading causes are very treatable and are very cost effective. So from childhood, a pair of 
distance glasses to help short-sighted kids see uh, in your working age. Kind of which was your ex- personal experience. Exactly, which was, which was uh, you know, I grew up with very poor vision as a, as a kid. And I remember you've told me the story that you grew up with poor vision, you were a poor learner, you couldn't read, they thought you were a conk, um, and then literally your, your life changes. Yeah, I mean, I was around 12 years old, my report cards were coming home from school saying, very bright but doesn't pay attention, or always daydreaming, and... I remember actually walking and standing on a table like this that was glass. Uh, I didn't see it. And I said, it's really clumsy. Um, and uh, I was taken to get an eye test at the age of 12. And whilst doing the eye test, the optometrist was shocked at how poor my sight was. I was minus three and a half, which kind of meant anything beyond arm's length. Like, it was invisible. And um, yeah, so the world was kind of soft and, and blurry for me. And they said, just go. There's some parts of the world that should be soft and blurry, but that's a different point. Exactly. And I, and I, I kind of went outside with these trial frames on and, and the optometrist said, tell me what you can see. I just remember seeing trees with leaves on them. But you didn't know trees had leaves. It was just stunning. And looking at the floor and seeing the gravel and the amount of detail, I suddenly went into kind of high definition. And, and my life changed from that point on, from a child who was failing in school and struggling in many different and uh, dimensions to suddenly excelling and uh, something so simple, which has existed for 700 years, glasses completely changed my life. And, and that was really the beginning of a journey, realizing that that access to something so simple was not universal. And that's why you became an ophthalmologist. Exactly why I became an ophthalmologist. I, I had this deep desire to try and understand why... Had I lived in a different postcode, a different country, with something that has been so transformational not have happened. And, or at least I waited until you were 12. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so the journey began, uh, which took me down the path of wanting to become a doctor and, and then an ICE. So to go back to Pete, the, the innovative insight was that you're frantically treating as many people as you can treat. Much of this work was in Africa. Uh, but it's like an iceberg. You realize you're at the tip of the iceberg and, and, and most of what you should be doing was, was under, was invisible to you. Yeah. How did you rethink the paradigm? So there's several components. One, my, my PhD whilst living in Kenya was going and establishing hundred temporary eye clinics. And every time we'd go to one of these temporary eye clinics, um, we, you were trying to follow up a certain cohort of people, but we'd put the call out that if you've got an eye problem, we're here, we'll treat you. I would be queues of people, hundreds waiting to see us. And most of them had, uh, you know, cataracts, which we could operate on and restore sight in 10 minutes. Uh, they had different eye conditions, which were manageable or treatable, or they were going to lose sight, but we could prevent it if we caught them early. I was just seeing that the, there were so many people who we could help, but we were there for one day at a time and we weren't coming back. And these were just, it's almost worse. Yeah. And then was worse for all the people that couldn't get to the front of the queue. Exactly. It was kind of how, you know, we're, we're not even scratching the surface and doing this. And it was in one of these locations that was incredibly remote. There was no road access. There was no running water. There was no electricity. And, but there was perfect mobile signal. And the mobile signal was so good that I was able to do, uh, at the time, Skype calls with my PhD supervisor. And it dawned on me that we could be totally disconnected, yet connected in a way that, you know, 15 years ago was quite novel. 
Um, and that for me was a realization that maybe there's a different way we can do this. Maybe there's a way that those who have been invisible, we can make visible and we can bring them into the services that would transform their lives. So you use technology as the, as the focal point, as the, as the fulcrum of a new approach. Yeah, because one of the issues is there's very few eye health workers. And so uh, if we wanted to wait until there's enough eye health workers, the backlog's only going to blow up. And we're talking hundreds of years to turn to current pensive growth. So that was another option. So what I started asking myself is, of the various tasks that happen, who else could do those if enabled with the right technology and there's the right confidence in the system? So what was happening before is of these very few specialists, they would be going out, doing outreach, trying to raise awareness, going and doing screening in the community, in schools. They would be triaging them at various camps and then bringing them back to the hospital for treatment. And we figured that actually 90% of that didn't need the, the eye surgeon. That could be done by general health workers. And actually the very front of the funnel could be done by non-health workers. We wanted to make the, the minimum competence with smartphone literacy, not healthcare literacy. Because then we could have much smaller, much smaller. Um, and that's what we did. We built a technology, a, a way of testing vision that all you had to do was be uh, uh, literate using a smartphone to accurately detect people who needed so fast forward to today and back to that village that you were in when, when the light bulb starts to go off. It, that kind of village, what would the experience be? How would it work? So today we, we work through partnerships. So we work with the government, we work with international NGOs, um, and they would be making sure the infrastructure is there so that when we go out and identify someone, there is a place that they can get treatment, they can access it, and they can food it. Um, what would be experienced in the village would be a community health promoter coming to the household with a smartphone, doing a vision test on our phone. And if that person met a threshold of four vision, they're automatically now in the system. So now they're, they're a known person. The healthcare center is notified that this person has been found and is due to come. That person or their carer starts to receive personalized SMS messages saying, you've been found with an eye problem, this is where you need to go. And then they're sent reminders. Um, and then that person will go on a specific day to a local health center where they'll either be a permanent facility or there'll be a temporary facility where people are coming to provide treatment. And when it's a temporary facility in Kenya, for example, they're seeing around 800 people in a, in a day. Um, and so what has happened is around 10,000 people have been screened to qualify the 800 that need to come. So those who come... We, so you're working at the bottom of the iceberg. You're making the bottom of the iceberg smaller. Exactly. And it means, it means that people aren't wasting their time, either the healthcare providers or the patients coming to me. Oh, patients matter. Exactly. And, the, and, and, you know, it, what we have seen in the past is if they are making that journey and no one is there to see them, they won't make it again. I'm sure. And if they make the journey and there is someone there to see them and they have to wait more than 24 hours, they have to go home, they won't make it again. So you've got one opportunity to help make sure those who typically wouldn't access services can access it. So we've got to get that right. And so a lot of it is managing supply and demand. It's not really ophthalmology. This is about supply chain management, demand generation, conversion tools, the things that typically would be used in marketing, but applying it in a very different field to make sure those who typically wouldn't get services get A world under stress like ours needs better leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values, and global in approach or implication. 
If you know someone like that in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate her or him for the Telberg SNF Eliason Global Leadership Prize. Nominations will open on March 15th. For more info, check out telbergprize.org. So what would happen a young Andrew, a 12-year-old kid who is who needs his eyes tested and simply needs glasses? How would that person's of that village? Yeah. Doesn't have to go somewhere 800 miles or however it's how would how would the young Andrew have been treated in this system? So what would happen is uh, a group of people would come to the school. They would screen all of the children. Each child would take about a minute to do the assessment. If you pass the test, you we just collect minimal data, age, um, gender, and, and that's it. We don't collect any personalized data. But if you didn't pass the test, so if I was found as I as I was at that point, the teacher would have been shown a visual simulation of my world. So they would understand what it's like for me and what I'm not seeing. So the teacher now cares. Um, the place where I'm going for treatment, whether they're going to come and see me or I'm going to go somewhere, they now know about me. And there's an appointment made in terms of when I'm going to go and get this assessment. But has the eye test already happened? So you already know that the vision is X yes. and the correction would be Y. So we know the first bit, not the second bit. So we go for the minimal amount of data collection at any so partially for speed reasons, just so you could feel mean, but also you don't add anything by knowing the diagnosis at that point, because the decision at that point is, does this person need to go somewhere or not? Whether they, this is a yes, no decision tree, it's binary at that yep. point. And so we try and make that as, as efficient and low cost as possible. And then at the next point in their journey is when they're diagnosed with the condition and either treated at that point, or if they have something more complex, it'll be... Uh, so if it's as simple, air quotes, as glasses, at that point they get their glasses. Yes. Um, if they need something more like surgery, they'll have the assessment for the surgery and then they'll be sent on for the surgical date. What we then do is across the program, we're looking at the data to see, did Andrew make it? And if Andrew didn't make it, what was it about him that was different to those who did? And we start really digging. So it's a learning process. You are trying to continually teach this continuous improvement, embedding it in, and we we find there are so many reasons that are nuanced as to why people don't turn up. So I'll give you an, an example of how this interaction between data and humans works. So in the early days when we were prototyping this, we had some funding which meant if anyone had cataracts, we would pay for this surgery and we'd cover their transport. And transport we'd found was the biggest barrier. Mm. So we figured if they provided free surgery and free transport, lots of people would come and get it. But the data shows only half the people were turning up. And that surprised us. So we started looking into it and couldn't really understand why, but there was a particular ethnic group that were not turning up. We're in Kenya now. In Kenya. And so we started uh, trying to pay more attention to it. And I would notice that when the team were counseling patients for cataract surgery, they would say a certain word, which was Fupaswaji, and their face would drop. And I asked the team, what does that word mean? They said it means surgery operation. Um, and then I heard the term used in a completely different context. And I said, well, what does that word mean? And they said, oh, it means to split or butcher. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So now we know. So what these people were hearing is it's free. We'll provide transport and then we're going to butcher your ride. So not surprisingly, they'd chosen to turn up. So by just changing that word to me, rather than 50% turning up, 78% turned up. And so that was the power of data. It was the interaction between suppose, human compassion and data intelligence to say, where do I need to make the change? And we find in every program, 
there are hundreds of examples like that and they change over time and they're nuanced and the, the power is in the nuance. Um, and so there are no set rules, but there are set principles in terms of if you follow them and you follow the data, it doesn't tell you the answer. It tells you where to look for the answer. And the answer comes from the people whom you're trying to serve. Let's talk numbers. First, uh, people and then dollars, money. So in terms of people, how many people are you able to treat now? What's, what have we done? What have you done with this iceberg? What's it look like today? Well, I should first kind of qualify that we don't do the treatment. That, you know, we work through brilliant eye care providers who work tirelessly. We try and make sure they are as effective and efficient as they, as they can be. Um, and what we're doing is bringing people to them who they otherwise wouldn't have seen. And to date, uh, we have screened around five and a half million people in programs. So imagine where, where, where are we? We're in Africa. Most this is nine countries in Africa and then three in Asia and in India, Nepal and Pakistan. And that includes a national school screening program in Botswana. In Kenya, it's a large program with the Ministry of Health and a leading German disability organization called CBM, which is a program designed for 8 million people. Uh, that reached a million people in its first 11 months of, of launching. Um, in Pakistan, the program has reached around two and a half million people. Uh, in the last year, we've trained lady health workers to use our technology. So they're going out and doing household screening and bringing people in through a completely connected funnel now, all the way from primary health facilities, secondary facilities, optometrists, tertiary hospitals. And what happens is that these higher centers, they're actually seeing more of the right people. So before they would see a lot of people who had basic conditions that didn't even need to be managed at that level because people didn't realize there were other places. That you created a smart food chain. Yeah. So, so just a food chain. So, so it means the system is now optimized and can therefore deal with a lot of people. And that is shift changing to shifts in terms of policies, in terms of who can work where, what services are provided where, and ultimately better for patients because they're having to travel less distance to get the things that they need. So five and a half million people have, have been screened. What's, what do you think the, the real numbers are going to be? What, what, what needs to be done? So, I mean, although those numbers sound quite big, they're really not. I mean, when that's what I was afraid you were going to say. We're nowhere near what we need to be doing. We know, we know today there are 1.1 billion people who could see better tomorrow if we found them and treated them. So. These numbers are nowhere close to what they... You're still piloting. You're still in the pilot. Yeah, I mean, we, we need these things to be adopted by government to go to national scale. And actually, peak is not the answer on its own. We can only optimize the resources that are there. At the moment, eye care is a completely forgotten issue. It's, it's one of these paradoxical things in that because it's so treatable, everyone's assumed that it has been treated. And so we've missed this opportunity of what we think is a golden thread for the SDGs. You know, it impacts everything. Learning, earning, well-being, safety. If you can't see, you can't. Yeah. And, and so um, we're trying to be better at making sure it's integrated into other systems because whilst eye care is ignored, healthcare and education and other priorities, we need to make sure that vision is a component of this um, and not assume that it's accessible like it might be for us in places like where we're you know, sat in Italy today just on the walk over I passed two or three places providing optometry services. That's not something you'll see in a lot of the places that go. How do you pay for it? So we have a mixed model. We charge NGOs and governments uh, a license fee for our uh, service and our software. Uh, that is about one third of our revenue. And then two thirds comes from grants and donations. So 
uh, family foundations, individuals, um, uh, R&D grants, those kind of things to, to build what we're doing. But what we're recognizing is long term, we're only going to unlock this problem if we find a revenue source that is aligned to the impact that we're making. So we're grateful that we have incredible uh, backers and, and supporters that have helped us grow to where we are. But when we're talking about the gap between where we are and the numbers that need to happen if we're going to solve the problem, a huge component of that will be unlocking a mechanism whereby we serve those who need the care that, that they can get and it generates revenue to do more of that. Um, and that's a big challenge and actually something I'm really excited about trying to solve because it's not just a problem for us, it's a problem for social business worldwide. It's, that was really going to be my next question. What do you do next? You've, you've done this. this you're, uh, you, there's still a lot of work to do to make this yeah. what it can be. But what's the next challenge? It sounds like turn, creating this one of a better term business model that will provide the resources to get to the billion, billion and a half people is the challenge. Yeah. Um, and it's not a challenge I face alone as a, as a sector. We're all recognizing that this is a, this is a big problem. Um, a few years ago, I co-founded an organization called the Vision Catalyst Fund, recognizing that peak was only going to make as much impact as there were resources in the sector to mobilize and optimize. And to give you a sense of just how little funding there is in this space, in this space defined as, as eye care provision, eye care, which is, which is everything from cataract surgery to glasses to red drops. Um, in, in the county of Nairobi, there's 803 primary health facilities. Three of them have eye care facilities in them. Of those three, only one has facilities that work. In the population of the county, order of magnitude, a couple of million, couple million beyond or beyond. Um, and so, when, when you see the kind of amount of resources there for eye care, it's an absolute fraction of what they did to solve the problem, despite the return on investment right, being huge. You know, the, the estimates are a dollar in for eye care is $20 out in terms of contract operation, the productivity, the reduced loss of uh, additional costs for care for that person are, are huge. Um, so we need to find a model that pays for itself. Um, and that was the thinking behind the Vision Catalyst Fund was, could we think of this more like a mortgage? Could we think of a, uh, a way of incentivizing governments with the resources they need to solve the problem in a way that's going to outpay their in initial investment manifold because of the economic return of people being able to see better? But know that actually, if this is children in school, the economic return isn't realized for a decade or two. So there, there needs to be a mechanism. We're trying different vehicles now and see can we create financial incentives to solve the problem that means everyone wins? Um, and that, I think, is one of our big challenges today. You know, in, in terms of many of the global issues we see, it's resources are in the hands of very few, power is in the hands of very few. And we need to shift that power dynamic. And um, we see that we have a role to do it in the space that we're in, but potentially to create a battle beyond what we're doing. A personal question. Are you still operating? No, I stopped operating um, about 12 years ago, partly because I realized I couldn't do all the things I was trying to do. I was about to ask, do you miss it? No, I did love it. It was... And you were good at it? Yeah, I was, I was good enough. <laughs> I was a safe surgeon. I was, my results were good. Um, there were better surgeons than me, but I realized that actually what I cared about was the outcome of surgery, not that I was the surgeon. Um, it didn't feel like a big job, but to be honest, I didn't enjoy what I'm doing so much. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly challenged that I don't miss it. 
but I, I wasn't looking to escape from it either. You evolved. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for the conversation, for all the work you're doing. And obviously this conversation demonstrates why the jury selected you as one of the, the 2023 prize winners. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.